when I come into the home to give a, uh, a Dharma talk, I very much enjoy the opportunity to uh, kneel down and bow to the the Buddha and the Bodhisattva we have here in the uh, hall. Uh, representing the potential and the manifestation of wisdom, of compassion and of freedom. And just as an expression for myself of my appreciation of the Buddha for his remarkable life and teachings that offer us an opportunity and a pathway to discover that wisdom, that freedom and that compassion that is so profoundly transformative. And it's this theme that I'd like to reflect on this evening, what we could describe as the fruition of practice, the uh, realization, the discovery of, of that to which our practice invites us to realize and to discover. And we could think of, or we could, I think, usefully understand the fruition of awakening of this path, the fruition of this path as being expressed in the manifestation, the realization of freedom, and in the expression, the manifestation of compassion. And I'd like to reflect on this uh, framed initially from the words, or with the words of a, uh, a wonderful Tibetan teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, who is, I think, uh, often quoted and uh, much appreciated and very succinct expression of what teachings point to. He once said, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality you are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Remarkable words. to reflect on the possibility or the degree to which we may live in illusion. We can consider how much of our life we are very much bought or we very much believe in or buy into the appearance of things. The appearance that we are separate from others, that we are somehow isolated and disconnected from the world. This way of appearing, this way of conceiving, this way of understanding life is the basis of the most fundamental and deep suffering that we experience. And it's of course quite understandable that we come to this because it appears that way. It appears that we are individual, that we are separate, that this body is not connected to that body. And yet, 
the underlying truth is not of separation. When we live in a world where we believe in separation, in distance, in disconnection, in the isolated and individual self-existence of one's own personal identity, then we live in a world that is bound and defined by birth and death. We live in a world in which when we identify with our experience, we identify with things that come and go, that are born and die. And because we identify with being these things, these thoughts, these feelings, this body, this mind, because we identify, when we identify with this, we are immediately fearful because this that we have identified with is transient, is vulnerable, is subject to ending. And it's a little bit like as if there was a wave on the ocean and it was just heading along rather happily enjoying the trip as one might do in perhaps one's earlier years of life thinking, wow, this is fun, this is amazing, here we are just cruising along. And then at some point in the far distance one catches a glimpse of the shore and this wave just sort of flowing on the ocean sees this shore and it, it's like, gosh, what's happening over there? And it looks like all these waves are hitting it and being destroyed. Wow, this, this is suddenly kind of serious. This, I could imagine if it was a sentient wave, it would be pretty worried upon noticing that this is what was happening to all the uh, waves going before us. There would be fear. Perhaps there would be terror. Perhaps there would be mild occasional anxiety. Um, most of these things are things that we're familiar with. Of course, if we reflect upon the wave journey, it is inevitable that as a wave heading towards the shore, at some point it will reach the shore. Just as it is inevitable that these bodies, having been born, will one day die. But if we were to examine carefully what happens when the wave reaches the shore, what is it that occurs? Of course, the wave breaks on the shore and is no longer. And yet, what happens to the water? I mean, what is the wave apart from the water? And what happens to the water? Nothing. The water is unharmed by its encounter with the beach or the shore. And so long as we are identified with being this mind and body, so long as we believe that this is what we truly are, then we live in the fear of its dissolution and ending. But if we begin to question this, if we, without having to substitute some other theory for what we are or are not, we just... Uh, Perhaps leave it open that this isn't the entire picture, this isn't the whole of the story. Then there may be the possibility of discovering something else. All that we encounter, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings, this body, this mind, is indeed subject to change. What we call the world is transient. 
And yet, this is not all that life reveals. But it's so hard for us to actually see beyond that appearance. Kali Rinpoche's words, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When we see that our experience is changing, when we see that it's not fixed, that it keeps moving, morphing, transforming from one thing into another, we start to consider whether perhaps our way of perceiving is not showing us the whole picture. Because it seems that if this is the whole picture, there is no escape. There is no other way. There is no possibility of freedom. There is no possibility of release from that which is bound, conditioned, and destined for death. But to to see that perhaps this is not who we are is to not fix our attention so exclusively upon it, to not give it quite such authority, to not make it quite so important, without in any way dismissing or negating the significance of our experience, that changing, unfolding flow of moment-by-moment revelation of this and that, and all that we can learn from it, which of course is considerable and beneficial. But to consider that if we turn, or not just turn our attention away from that, but don't fixate upon it, that there is within us the capacity to recognize, to see, as it were, with different eyes. Not the, the physical eye, but the, the eye of our heart, the eye of understanding, of wisdom, we could say. And this might reveal a world or a truth that would turn our perception and our imagination of what we are thought to be so completely upon its head. There's a story I enjoy relating that concerns an old Chinese hermit who was a great master of meditation and lived in a small hut high in the hills in China many, many years ago. And he would practice meditation with enthusiasm and commitment and ardour. And much the way as we've been practicing here, dedicated to his exploration of experience and life. And he lived a very simple existence. Once a week he would walk down the path from his hut down the hills to the nearest outlying village. And there he would beg for a little food to take back with him for another week of practice. And he lived this way for many, many years. He was quite content. And One day, there came to that small village near his hut, there came a delegation from the, the local town council who were just doing a census and checking out to see how things were going out in the outlying villages. And they heard when asking at some of the, uh, the village people's houses of this old man, and he, he 
they were a little concerned. Oh, that doesn't sound like he's a very productive member of our culture and society. I think we'll have to go and check him out and see what's going on. So they went up the path, up the hill, found this little old hut, knocked on the door. Boom, boom, boom. There's no response. And uh, so the leader knocked again a bit more firmly this time. Boom, boom, boom. No response. So he just turned the door handle, thrust the door open and stepped into the room. And there, in the middle of the room, sitting cross-legged in meditation, with no clothes on at all, was the old man. Just a long grey beard. And the leader of the delegation was rather perturbed and nonplussed. He said, what's going on? What's going on? The old man just looked up at him, didn't respond. He said, what's happening here, said the leader. I want to know, what are you doing sitting in this hut with no pants on? And the, uh, the old man looked up at him and smiled. He said, you know, that's what you might think is happening, but in fact, this is not true. From where I'm sitting, this whole world is my hut. This hut is my pants. And I want to know what are you doing in my pants? <laughs> there's a, as well as the, obviously the, the humour of the story, there's a, it expresses a sort of a vastness of vision. But actually I find rather rather touching and beautiful. A sense of the world as one's heart and, well, the heart as one's pants is sort of someone who prefers a looser fit. And there's something kind of appealing about that. How often we kind of tend to make everything very tight, tightly fitting. We fill our life with too many things. When we come on retreat we begin to empty out the fullness of things begins to become less so. We start to notice the space within which all those things are held. The space within which what we think of and imagine ourselves to be unfolds. And as we as we deepen into our practice as it unfolds through a retreat and through our life. What we start to notice at times, what can appear, is a sense that all the things that initially caught our attention aren't standing out quite so strongly. They're not so much grabbing us, because we've seen that in the end they don't provide lasting satisfaction. That in the end there is more peace and happiness and well-being to be found than simply resting in their presence. Neither rejecting nor pursuing what arises around us or within us. And in this, in this quality of presence in which we're not taking hold of what's occurring, we have the possibility to begin to sense the vibration, the resonance of what we could call the ground of being, what we could call the, the deeper nature of our life, which we <coughs> don't necessarily notice, although it's never absent. We don't necessarily recognize because 
we're looking somehow in the wrong direction. We're constantly looking towards all the things that are happening. We're so fascinated with the stories of our life. And it's a little bit like as if we were to watch a movie. And then we go to the movies, I'm sure you've all seen them. We go in there, and there are some colours projected onto a white screen. And some sounds projected through the speakers. And somehow in the watching of the movie, what happens is we start to get engaged with the story of what's going on. And we see a bunch of colours. And we realise that they're actually the good colours. There's another bunch of colours, they're the bad colours. And we're a bit worried because the bad colours is really trying to do something nasty to the good colour. And we really believe this is what's going on. It's remarkable what a movie can do for our consciousness, how we get drawn into it, how, how we're afraid for them. And at some point later on, of course, because it's a movie, the good colours seem to somehow um, avoid being harmed by the bad colours and meet some other rather cute-looking good colours, and they go off together, you know, and we feel very happy. And yet, the whole time, what was going on is some colours were being projected on the screen. And what's interesting about this is that at no time during the movie can we see the screen. If we could see the screen, we wouldn't believe in the story. We couldn't get drawn into it. But the movie could not be revealed. We couldn't see any of those colours if the screen was not there. Life is revealed because of its ground, or we could say its backdrop, which we can't actually see. We can't directly perceive, we can't directly sense it with our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, or our thinking mind. It's not of the order of experience that can be related to or recognised in that way, but it's revealed, it's can be sensed, it can in a certain way be inferred by the fact that all of this is being revealed, by all the fact that all of this is shown up. Not by the senses, not by the mind, but through the resonance of our being, of our heart we could say that actually feels, that actually senses, that actually has within us the knowledge of that. And this isn't intellectual knowledge, this is the knowledge of life, which our life participates in, which our life is not part of, which is both new and yet familiar, fresh and yet recognisable when we encounter it. And this is rather mysterious, rather inexplicable. How can we talk about that which we cannot see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel or conceive? We can't, really, in any meaningful way. And in the Dharma tradition, in the Buddha's teaching, we tend to leave this as something we, that is pointed to, 
and not defined. Because any definition would inevitably fall short of the truth. And yet, this is not to say we are distant from that. That uh, to understand there is a reality, you are that reality. What does that mean for us? What does that point to for us? What I think it suggests very clearly is that what we're looking for is already here. That in our sense of a journey, and that's an appropriate metaphor for life, for spiritual practice, in our sense of a journey, the journey is always and only the journey back to where we already are. The journey home, we could say. And this journey is one in which we discover in the end we had not left where we thought to arrive. We had simply failed to recognize it. As T.S. Eliot wrote in the Four Quartets, We shall not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. To come back to where we begin, to return to the source of our life, is a journey and no journey. The most profound and important undertaking we can engage in, and yet one which in its completion we discover was rather humorously unnecessary. Some years ago I was uh, washing the dishes at home after dinner and uh, the phone went. So I went and picked up the telephone and was talking to some friend I think. And as I was talking I was just, uh, as I was then uh, not that long married and uh, was in the habit of just sometimes feeling the ring on my finger and sort of playing with it. Um, kind of this novel thing. Well, a few years of novelty by then, but still novel it seemed. And as I was uh, talking on the phone, my fingers just sort of reached down to that place and started to play with that spot and noticed that it wasn't there. And so I quickly covered the mouthpiece on the phone and called out to my wife and said, Catherine, don't drain the dishwater. Um, and finished the phone call. Went. And, and just feeling the sense as I finished the call of this uh, sense of this, my ring being missing. I'm really concerned and went and looked through the dishwater and it wasn't there. So I was looking around the house and I was walking around feeling, I could feel that shiny, smooth, sort of pinky piece of skin where underneath which, but that's just what the skin is like underneath it because it's, it's sort of been polished over a few years. And, um, and it was this real deep sense of distress and concern, I remember. And I was looking, where did, it, where did it go? Where could I put it? How did it fall off? And at some point after I'd been looking around the house for 10, 15 minutes, 
Catherine looked over at me, she said, and they were like, where is it? She said, it's the other hand. <laughs> I was looking for it, and you know, I was never going to find it there. I was busy looking everywhere else. And you know, I was never going to find it anywhere else. It was always here. And of course, one wouldn't have realized that without that journey. But it was always there. And this is the journey of our life. To discover in the end that the end of our search is revealed by the discovery that that we are seeking is that which is seeking. That which is looking is that which is sought for. What does that mean? How can we understand that? When we realize this, of course, what happens is the momentum dissolves. The sense of, I've got to find something. It's not okay. Something's missing. Something's wrong with me. Or something's got to be solved or fixed. The whole sense of the problem of life dissolves. The mystery of life, of course, remains. Because it's no less mysterious for that understanding, for that discovery. In fact, more so, more mysterious. And there's a certain kind of wry humour right with the ring to discover that actually it was never lost, but we lose contact with it because we're looking for it somewhere else. We lose contact with our life because we're seeking it somewhere else. And so in practice we are invited, encouraged, um, cajoled perhaps even, <laughs> to come back, to turn back to our life, to here, to now, because this is the only place we will discover the depth and the truth of what it means to be alive. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. To see all the things, the changing experiences that flow through, that pour through, it seems, when we still we notice just how much life is happening, how it's unstoppable. It just keeps on unfolding. Some of it's sweet, some of it's bitter, some of it's neutral, but it just keeps on happening. It's unstoppable. We notice that. And yet, when we don't take ourselves to be anything, it's not a problem. And it's really only when we understand that this is not all there is to life that we actually begin to relax. When we recognize that truth is immutable, unchanging and ever-present, that the awakened nature of our life is here, now, always, then the urge to grasp the things, the urge to fix it and reorganize it, loses its meaning and its momentum. And the releasing just happens. It's not something one does. 
That's one of the features of understanding. It's not like we do the letting go. Like letting go happens because there's no reason anymore to hold on. And the whole process of craving, of grasping, and the suffering, and the pain, and the fragmentation, and isolation that it creates, it arises because we don't see truly our nature, the nature of life. We look for satisfaction where it can't be found, can't be found, and therefore don't find it where it's immediately available. To understand this, that we are nothing, there is no thing that defines us. We are not confined or limited to any particular. To understand this is to realize freedom. Because to be defined, to be defined by anything, by this body, by this mind, by this experience, is to be bound to something that is limited, that is constrained by birth and death. And that by its nature is not free of those conditions of birth and death. But to not actually define ourselves by any experience, any thought, any idea we have about who we are, any belief system that we have created that says I am this, I'm like that or I'm not this, I'm not that because it's not just a case of where we say we are this, I, I'm like this that becomes an identity it's equally where we say I'm not that understanding this principle is not to set ourselves apart from anything, from any of our experiences or in fact from any one or thing else The truth of life is not apart from that which is born and dies, but nor is it defined by it. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing, no thing. And being nothing, you are everything. When we no longer identify ourselves as being something particular or as not being something particular, what is actually apparent is that there is no separation. There is no substantial basis for holding ourselves apart from the totality of life. And this is the recognition, the revelation of interconnectedness, interpenetration and the co-participation in the commonality of the nature of things. 
the nature of things that is awakened benevolence, we could say. That sees that we are not separate, that sees that life is in total communion with itself, could not exist for a moment in any of its forms, if not all of those forms were supporting each. Totally interdependent, inter-arising, inter-existence. This is hard for the mind to grasp. The mind works by dividing and separating and categorizing and comparing and analyzing and setting one thing against another. And so it can't really go there. Because this is not territory of that nature. So humility is required of us. And also, the willingness and the courage to feel deeply into the depths of our heart and our truth. When I say heart and this, I'm not meaning the emotional heart, but the core of our being. What is it when we're simply still? When we're not focusing on something particular, when we're not defining defining ourselves or defining another. Is there any basis for holding ourselves apart? Is there any basis for saying that I am separate or you are other? Apart from the thought, there's no reality to it. And the thought is just a bubble and appear. To recognize interconnectedness, to see that we are everything, that the nature of life is that it is indivisible, indivisible. is to actually discover why it is that the words healing, wholeness and holy are all derived from the same root. The profound suffering of life is not the unpleasant, difficult, horrible, sticky, messy, confusing and occasionally nasty things we encounter in life. Sure, that's difficult. That's hard. No one would wish that on anyone. I would not wish that on any of us. And yet we encounter these things. But that is not the deepest suffering. The deepest suffering is the sense of isolation, the sense of aloneness, apartness, disconnection, somehow feeling that we are alien within our own world, a stranger in a strange land, when there is no other land or place we could be. This is the deepest suffering. And it is this that the recognition and the understanding of interconnectedness when we define ourselves as no thing, when we realize ourselves as all things, this is healed. And in that healing, 
the wholeness is revealed. That which needs to heal is that which has been set apart. And in coming back together, not only is wholeness revealed, but equally holiness. That which we could appropriately describe as divine, as spiritual, as mystical. This is revealed equally in that indivisible and yet ungraspable wholeness. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That is all. It's not something special. It doesn't make us into somehow, oh wow, look at me. That would kind of not really make sense, would it? It's kind of actually ordinary. It's kind of, oh, of course. A little bit like, oh yeah, of course. How could I have not remembered? somehow we manage to not remember. And this really requires and calls from us both a sense of really gentle and compassionate uh, caring and humour to hold the situation that we find ourselves in, what it means to be in the world, to look and see, wow, how challenging this is. and how we would chuckle if we saw the truth. But so far and to the degree that we and beings do not always remember are not always in contact with the truth of our being. There is suffering, there is pain and there is equally the wish to heal it. This too naturally expresses itself, is manifest in the very nature of life. When we are not connect, are not disconnected, when we feel our relationship, then quite naturally the movement of our heart is to care for the well-being of all, ourselves and others equally. That the divisions that we create between those we would care for and those we do not, really have in the end no meaning, no substance. To exclude another or to exclude ourselves from the love that is within us, all of us, makes no sense when we see beyond the artificial distinctions and divisions that we create, the appearances that we believe in that are not the deepest truth. Compassion arises because we are not separate. And it means to feel with. It's not something distant. It's not something we do to or for someone else. True compassion responds because there is no gap between the source of the compassion and its object. 
just as when our hand rubs our foot, if the foot is sore, we don't think in terms of, oh, this is my hand and that's my foot, maybe I'll do a good deed now and rub my hand against my foot. It's kind of natural, it's kind of ordinary. I hurt my foot, I rub it with my hand. Yeah, of course. One doesn't think too much about it. And yet we can talk about my hand as being, oh, it's my hand, sure. That's something different than my foot. That's my foot. But where does one end and the other begin? Talk about it, and we'd all agree, I have a hand, you probably, you know, you have a hand and a foot, and they're not the same thing, clearly. I'm not suggesting that everything is exactly the same, identical in its expression. But where does the hand end and the foot begin? There's no place where that happens except in one's mind. This is a hand foot with a bit in between. And sometimes the hand rubs the foot and the foot is sore. Other times the hand gets to hang out in the pocket while the foot has to do the schlepping around, going places. To understand that this is how life works. Because it's obvious that hand and foot are in the same body, that response is instinctive and natural. When we realise that the same could be said of each and every being, no, further, no more separate than our hand and our foot, then equally, quite naturally, compassion responds to life. As Shantideva once reflected, he said, just as we see these limbs as part of our body, could we not see all being as limbs of embodied life? What would that mean to see in this way? How would that transform our life and the world? To see all beings as limbs of embodied life, as expressions of that which we are. Different, unique, remarkable, extraordinary, inexplicable, sometimes rather perturbing expressions of that which we are. But nonetheless, in the end, ultimately, and at the heart of it, no different than ourselves. Not apart, even, from ourselves. And even though we might think we have separate bodies, but what are our bodies made up of? The sun and the wind and the rain and the earth. And the very air that we breathe, we're sharing it with each other in the trees. The very energy that fires and keeps our system alive is produced by plants and the sun. How could we be separate from anything else? We couldn't exist for a moment if it wasn't all here. And in this, what's also here, just as fundamentally and absolutely, is the capacity of heart that care, that respond, that is love, benevolence and compassion. And it has the remarkable capacity to heal the suffering of the world. Not in some grand gesture or final solution, but by simply responding 
to where we are. This is what we're asked to do, and this too, equally as freedom, is an expression of the a sense of being unbound, unlimited, undefined, is an expression of the maturing of practice. So too, and equally, is compassion. The heart's natural response to life, unrestrained, unbound, in fact. And it's remarkable what is possible for our human heart in the expression of kindness and compassion. There is actually so much goodness in this world, so much compassion. It doesn't make it to the front page of the newspapers, which is tragic. Most of what we report, what we think about, what we hear, is the absence of that. But actually the world wouldn't survive without an immense amount of goodness. None of us would really bother with the incredible challenge of being alive without an immense amount of goodness within us. And finding ways to express love and compassion is actually crucial for the well-being of our heart and for the deepening of our practice and our life because it is actually in accord with the way things are. It is in accord with not being separate. But love and compassion manifest in the world. And this is not some injunction to somehow sacrifice ourselves. It can sometimes be felt or can be taken that way that we have to somehow sacrifice ourselves. To understand that compassion for ourselves is equally important as compassion for another. So when we're able to respond to what is in front of us, and we don't necessarily have to make grand gestures, but to respond to what is in front of us with kindness, with care. Sometimes we'll find we come to a place where we actually can no longer give to another. And in that moment, we actually need to respond to ourselves with kindness, with compassion, to understand that at some level we've encountered our own human limitations. So that we don't create a situation where we have some unrealistic expectation of what compassion means, where we leave ourselves out of the equation. I had a remarkable experience of this uh, process of just doing what we can. A, uh, an orphanage in which there were many young babies brought from the, uh, the streets of the poor and the impoverished in Calcutta, of which there were many. And they were provided, you know, they were t- taken care of. Either their parents had died or were too poor to feed them living on the streets, as many, many do there. And going into this uh, into this room full of babies, myself and a companion, a remarkable thing happened. As we walked into the room, we saw there were, I think, maybe three or four of the uh, the nuns, the, the sisters of mercy, or members of Mother Teresa's order, 
and they were moving quite purposely and quickly around the um, the cots. It was like a sea of cots, larger than the tall, two babies in each. And they were picking them up and they were either feeding them or they were changing them and they were putting them down and they were just working their way through this room. And as we walked in, babies started, those ones that were old enough and strong enough, started to reach up or even stand up, pull themselves up on the sides of the cot. And they're just kind of reaching out like that. And my friends and I, we looked at each other. It was amazing because we knew straight away what was happening. It was like these little babies wanted to be held. The, the nuns, the sisters, only really had time to go around cleaning them and feeding them. They didn't have time to hold these little beings. And so we just looked at them and thought, this room full of babies. What do they do? So, okay, reach down, pick it up. And it was like, like a limpet going on. But like, these babies knew what they wanted and they just started holding on. They holding this baby. And after a while, there's a room full of babies. So peel it off, put it down. Pick up another one. It was a remarkable experience. It was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. Part of me felt after doing this for two or three hours, which is as long as we were allowed to stay there. In Indian culture, men aren't really allowed, basically, to work with young children and babies. It's not acceptable. Um, Anyway, after some time, I, I, I really had this very strong feeling. Gosh, you know, I could spend the rest of my life in this room, just picking up these babies, holding them and putting them down. And it would be as meaningful a life as any other I could imagine. I think that was probably an accurate thought. But it's not what I chose to do. There was also that part of me that had other plans and hopes and dreams. I wanted to go on a cushion somewhere in the hill. And so leaving that, it was very interesting for me and very powerful because what I understood in that was having done what we could in that moment, which was just respond. We didn't, we couldn't, I didn't have the means or the capacity to save these beings from their lot or to transform their world or something in me. That wasn't what became the mission of my life. There was something heartbreaking in the process, but also something really healing in just doing what I could. And this is what's really important in practicing compassion. It's a response of doing what one can. Sometimes it's just the thought, may you be happy, may you be free of your suffering. Sometimes it's a, a kind word or deed. Sometimes we may feel moved to dedicate our life to something as an expression of compassion. And all of these are actually part of the deepening of our spiritual journey, of the aligning of ourselves with what is true. And it always makes a difference. It always makes a difference. Sometimes it can feel like, a little bit like with this room full of babies, it's overwhelming. What can I do here? Why bother? But it always makes a difference to respond. There's a wonderful story of a woman who was walking along a beach just after high tide on a sunny afternoon. The uh, tide was receding and all these starfish had been thrown up on the beach. Hundreds and thousands of them. 
woman was walking along, and picking them up and throwing them into the water, one at a time. And another person came along and said, what are you doing? She said, throwing these starfish back in. They're going to die out here in the sun. And the person said to her, why do you bother? There's thousands of, of starfish. How can you make any difference throwing a few of them in? She picked up another one, threw it in, and she said, makes a difference for that one. So in our practice, both in meeting ourselves and meeting this moment with compassion, meeting any situation or occasion we encounter, so far into the degree we allow ourselves to feel and to trust our connection, from that place the response can come. That doesn't mean we have to spend all day on the beach. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But what's important is that we allow our heart to respond to ourselves or to another. And this equally is the fruition of our practice. is just the natural expression of life. Freedom and compassion are simply what happens. As Kali Rinpoche says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And may we all, through our practice and our lives, come to understand more 
and more deeply. The truth of life and to live and the freedom and compassion of that truth for our own liberation and well-being for the liberation of all for the well-being of life itself Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.